A warning, this episode features dramatizations and discussions of sexual violence and abuse. Listener discretion is advised, especially for listeners under 13. Something to note, the story you're about to hear is not a direct retelling of any single myth about de books. Today's episode combines elements from a number of legends and stories about these malicious ghosts for dramatic effect. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. Every week on Mythical Monsters, we bring you stories of the terrifying creatures that have haunted the human imagination for centuries. Ever since the dawn of prehistory, people have been distilling their concerns and anxieties into legendary beasts that they could defeat and kill. By telling the stories of these mythical creatures, we hope to conquer some of the timeless human fears that still plague us today. Today, we're discussing the Dibuk, a ghost from Jewish mythology that inhabits the body of a living person. These evil spirits control their victims completely, making the sufferer a prisoner within their own body. Episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other ParCast originals are available for free on Spotify. We'll dive into the early story of Dibuk after this. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Sarah Leah clutched the old wooden box to her chest as she stepped into the little tailor's shop. Model Lipschitz was sitting at a table in the corner, bundled up in the blue velvet coat that his father had left to him. It was a lovely jacket, embroidered with silver thread and fastened with buttons of carved mahogany. It was probably the only thing of value that he owned. Model beamed at Sarah Leah as she approached. He was a thin, sickly young man with thick spectacles and a sunken chest. But when he smiled, he could light up a room. She supposed that was why her daughter was so fond of him. The two had been friends since they were children. Once they reached a certain age, Sarah Leah had done her best to keep them apart. 
It wasn't right for an unmarried young woman to be spending so much time in the company of a man, but despite her best efforts, they always seemed to find each other. Of course, that wouldn't be a problem anymore. Sarah Leah set the wooden box down and asked Model if he would have time to do some alterations in the next few weeks. Model opened the box and pulled out the garment within as he replied, For you, Sarah Leah, I'd have time to do it tomorrow. Sarah Leah laughed and said, Oh, you can take your time. The wedding isn't for a month. Model's face fell. He let the white lace slip from between his fingers and asked, Wedding? What wedding? Sarah Leah smiled conspiratorially and lowered her voice. She said they'd finally found a husband for Fania. It's Hyman Mendla. I don't think there's a better match in all of Balta. Of course, it's too soon to be altering the wedding dress. It was only just decided on this morning, but I was just so excited. Model had begun to look a bit pale. He abruptly stood up from his chair and said, You'll have to excuse me. I'm suddenly feeling rather ill. Saralia asked him what was the matter, but Model just shook his head and rushed into the back room without another word. Saralia furrowed her brow as she watched the door slam shut behind him. Model had always been a good friend to her daughter, but there was no denying that the boy was a bit off. Saralia left the box where it was and headed out into the bright autumn sunshine. There was so much to do, relatives to write to, wedding arrangements to be made. She had far too much on her mind to concern herself with the likes of model Lipschitz. It was well after sundown by the time Fania headed home from the funeral. It had been a sad affair. Model Lipschitz had been shy and had few friends aside from her family. Fania had stayed until it was just her in the little tailor shop. Then she blew out the lamp, locked the door, and headed home through the falling snow. If it weren't for her mother and father, she might have stayed all night. She had loved Model since she was a child. He'd been saving up the money to marry her for years. But of course, she'd always known that her parents would never let him. The day her father told her that she was going to be married to Hyman Mendla was the worst day of her life. But she hadn't been surprised by it. Hyman was a big, broad-shouldered bully who was always picking on Model. He thought that just because he had money, he could get whatever he wanted. Maybe he was right. If Model had money, he'd still be alive. The rabbi who found him said that his death was the result of a delicate constitution, but she knew better. Model had died of a broken heart. Snow fell lightly over the dirt road as Fania trudged toward the three-story wooden house at the edge of town. With its ornamented gables and large, latticed windows, Fania's home was one of the nicest in all of Balta. The sight of it made a bitter rage rise up in her throat. 
Her parents had done this. They were the reason her beloved model was dead. Her father had called her into his study to tell her about the match as though it were happy news. Did he really know her so little that he thought she would want to marry Hyman Mendla? Fanya stepped into the entryway and slammed the door behind her, knocking the mezuzah onto the floor. She picked up the little brass case and examined it. The Torah verses inside signified their covenant with God. But what had God done for her lately? He hadn't saved model. Fanya opened the door and hurled the mezuzah into the yard. Suddenly, she felt a coldness creep into the pinky toe on her left foot. A deep, freezing ache spread up her legs. Fanya gasped as the strange sensation spread through her chest and up her neck. She opened her mouth to scream, but before she could, the thing gripped her head like icy fingers. It squeezed her temples, and the world went black before she could utter a sound. The phenomenon of spirit possession has existed in hundreds of civilizations and religious traditions throughout history. In ancient China, it was believed that ancestral spirits entered mediums in order to eat and drink sacrificial offerings. Similar stories existed in Hinduism and Zoroastrianism. Most anthropologists divide these possession traditions into two major categories, benign spirits and malicious ones. The spirits from the first group don't cause any harm to their human hosts. In many traditions, they may even help them, imparting important information from beyond the grave or giving the object of possession some new talent or skill. Those who come into contact with one of the spirits from the second group will not be so lucky. These are the entities that inspired movies like The Exorcist or The Amityville Horror. They're evil spirits that need to be exorcised by a professional. These types of possessions are most commonly found in the monotheistic religious traditions that originated with the Hebrew Bible. In Islamic belief, the possessing agent is often a jinn. In Christianity, it's a demon. And in Judaism, it is a dibuk. Usually, dibuks are the souls of men who were sinful in life. In death, these men have no place in heaven or hell. The Jewish conception of hell varies according to the beliefs of different sects. But in the Eastern European Ashkenazi tradition, associated with the dibuk, hell is depicted as a place called Gainom. Gainom is not meant to be a final destination. It's where people go if they aren't quite ready to be accepted into Olam Haba, or the world to come. It's a way station, a place where the dead can work through their sins and failings. Most don't stay longer than a year, but some are damned to stay forever. Others are so evil that they're beyond redemption. These are the souls who usually become dibuks. Dibuks aren't always evil or malicious. Sometimes their purpose is to demand justice for a wrong that's been done. Sometimes it's to possess the body of an evildoer as punishment. But even when they're acting as agents of justice, dibuks are always a burden on the living. They're a trauma of the past weighing on the present. 
Dibooks show us that the pain and loss of bygone years cannot be swept under the rug. Those who try will have a terrifying awakening in store. Sarah Leah awoke to a persistent thumping coming from directly overhead, her daughter Fania's room. She tried to shake her husband awake, but he just muttered something and turned away. Sarah Leah sighed. She would have to deal with this on her own. She dealt with everything else on her own. In the months since Model had died, Fania had been like a different person. She refused to touch certain foods and would go for days without eating anything at all. She claimed that people laughed and pointed at her whenever she went into town. She'd even cut off all her long, dark hair, leaving herself with a head of short, shaggy curls. Fania would claim she was tired and lock herself away in her room as soon as the sun set. Yet when she came downstairs each morning, she had dark circles under her eyes and looked like she hadn't slept at all. Sarah Leah had tried to talk to her husband about their daughter's strange behavior, but he just brushed her off. Reb Herschel thought that all of Fania's problems would be solved once she was married. He said marriage had a way of making children forget such foolishness. But Sarah Leah was reluctant. She'd known how upset her daughter was over the death of her friend. She'd wanted to give Fania time to grieve, so she'd postponed the wedding. Unfortunately, things had been getting worse. Her daughter made strange sounds and wandered about the house as if she was in a trance. Last Shabbos, Fania walked barefoot into the center of town without a coat or even a head covering. Saralia had begun to wonder if maybe her husband was right. Finally, she had decided that enough was enough. This very morning, she had told Fania that the marriage was back on, and it would happen within two weeks whether she liked it or not. She had hoped that taking a hard line might put an end to her daughter's difficult behavior. Apparently, she'd been wrong. Saralia sighed and pulled on a pair of fur-lined slippers. As she stepped out into the hallway, the noises overhead grew louder. Saralia's heart hammered as she crept up the creaky old stairs that led to her daughter's bedroom. She suddenly wished that she had thought to bring a candle with her. She didn't know what she was so afraid of. It was just her daughter at the top of the stairs. Fania was just making a racket to try and get a rise out of her. Even so, there was a definite tingle of fear that ran up her spine with each ominous thump that came from the closed bedroom door. As Sarah Leah reached the top of the steps, she heard a sound that made her hair stand on end. It was a muffled, gasping sound, as though someone was having their last breath choked out of them. Sarah Leah dashed up to the bedroom door and flung it open. She looked around the room and let out a sigh of relief. There was no one there aside from Fania. 
Her daughter was sitting on the floor next to her bed, facing away from the door. She held a copper candlestick and was hitting it against the floor. Sarah Leah called her, but Fanya didn't respond. She just kept pounding the candlestick against the floor. Sarah Leah took a step toward her daughter and said, Fanya, stop that right now. You'll wake Papa. Fanya twisted around to look at her mother. As her daughter's face came into view, Sarah Leah's blood ran cold. Her eyes were rolled up in her head and she was grinning like a madwoman. Fanya did not move her lips, but a voice came out of them. It was not her voice, but the ragged rasp of an old man. Well, don't just stand there, woman. I called you here for a reason. Go and get this old dibuk a drink. The color drained from Sarah Leah's face as the dibuk cocked its head at an unnatural angle and began to laugh. When we return, Sarah Leah tries to break her daughter free from the Dibuk's grasp. Hey listeners, I want to take a quick moment to introduce you to the newest ParCast original on the block. It's called Incredible Feats, and it's a short weekday show hosted by comedian Dan Cummins. Every weekday, Dan shares a true account of physical strength, mental focus, or genuine bizarre behavior, going behind the scenes and into the achievements of world-class athletes like Dean Carnassus, who once ran for nearly 81 hours without stopping, and performance artists like Lucky Diamond Rich, who boasts layers of tattoos in the most unlikely places, and even everyday people thrown into extraordinary circumstances, like Juliana Kopka, who was forced to survive alone in a rainforest for 11 days. Incredible Feats is offbeat entertainment that's sometimes weird, sometimes wonderful, and always surprising. New episodes air daily, Monday through Friday. Search Incredible Feats and follow free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. Sarah Leah backed away from the thing sitting next to her daughter's bed. It looked like her daughter, but she knew this was not her child. Fanya had been acting strangely ever since the death of her friend Model. Now Sarah Leah finally knew why. Her daughter was possessed by a dibuk. The spirit's mocking laughter followed Sarah Leah as she fled down the stairs. She ran into her bedroom and shook her husband awake. Herschel, you have to fetch the rabbi. She gasped in a choked sob. Something is wrong with Fanya. Rab Herschel groaned and pushed her away. What? 
What is so terrible that you would want to wake me and the rabbi in the middle of the night? Sarah Leah opened her mouth, but the words wouldn't come out. She was afraid that saying its name would give the spirit some kind of terrible power. Finally, she managed to stutter out one word, Dibuk. Her husband laughed. You're such a ninny, Sarah Leah. She's not possessed. Besides, Rab Zalman is in Swonim, visiting his mother. But if you're so concerned about Fanya, I'll go upstairs and talk to her myself. Sarah Leah followed her husband as he mounted the stairs to her daughter's bedchamber. Her hands were still shaking, and the light from her flickering candle cast eerie shadows over the walls of the stairwell. When they entered the room, Sarah Leah saw that Fania had gotten into bed and pulled the covers up over her head. A giggle came from under the covers. It was the rasp of a grown man imitating a young girl. It sent a chill up Sarah Leah's spine. She edged closer to the door. Herschel crossed his arms and took a step toward his daughter's bed. Whatever new nonsense this is, I won't have it, he said firmly. You've woken me up in the middle of the night and scared your poor mother half to death. Another giggle came from under the covers, and a strange voice replied, I'm terribly sorry, Papa. Why don't you come closer and I'll give you a goodnight kiss before I go back to bed? Herschel frowned and took another step towards the bed. Fanya, why do you sound so strange? He asked. The Dibuk didn't respond, and Herschel took another step forward. Sarah Leah held her breath. She wanted to warn her husband, but she knew that the only way he would believe her was if he saw the Dibuk for himself. The wind outside rose to a howling crescendo as Herschel came to stand beside his daughter's bed. He took hold of the bedclothes in a now trembling hand. As he pulled the blanket away, Fania leapt at him. She seized one of Reb Herschel's side locks and wrenched it out of his head in a spray of blood and bits of flesh. Then she let out a maniacal laugh. <laughs> Sarah Leah stared at her daughter in horror. Fania's short black curls were a tangled mess. Her eyes were rolling around wildly, and she was flicking her tongue around frenetically. She held up the bloody lock of hair and began to gnaw on the bit of flesh that had come out of her father's head. Reb Herschel clutched his bleeding scalp, and he staggered away from the bed. He looked at his daughter in terror and screamed, Who are you? What do you want from us? The Dibuk answered, I am Mordecai, the butcher of Kiev. In death, I was cast out, even from hell. I wandered the earth with imps and devils at my heels. They prodded me with hot irons and wailed like cats in heat if I rested my eyes for even a moment. I've wandered across Russia a thousand times. I entered your daughter because my throat was dry and I wanted a glass of brandy. Now get me one before I rip out more hair. 
Sarah Leah seized her husband's hand and pulled him from the room. Together, they fled down to the landing on the floor below. Herschel's face was pale, and his eyes were wide as he turned to his wife. Okay, he said finally. Let's get the rabbi. Most Dibbuk stories follow a pattern. In a collection of historical accounts of Dibbuk possession dating back to the 16th century, the majority of victims were young women. These women were either recently married or soon to be wed. In 90% of these possessions, the Dibbuk was male. The Dibbuk's victims had not committed any great sin. Usually their faith had faltered in some small way. Maybe the woman had doubts about some story in the Torah. Maybe her mezuzah was empty or her home was not kosher enough. Whatever it was, this small misstep allowed an evil spirit to enter her body. Sometimes through the pinky toe on the left foot, but often through the genitalia. The woman loses agency over her body, becoming a prisoner trapped within her own skin. The male perpetrators and female victims in these stories are not coincidental. The Dibbuk's act of forced penetration is a clear metaphor for rape. The word Dibbuk comes from the Hebrew word devakot, which means to bond or adhere. In the Torah, devakot is used in the phrase bonding of the flesh, a reference to consensual intercourse sanctified by God. When the Dibbuk enters its victims, it's described as Iber, the Hebrew word for impregnation. The words used to describe a Dibbuk are a perversion of the act it represents, just as rape is a violating, negative reflection of sex. For traditional Jewish women living in the Middle Ages, marriage was not optional. Procreation was a commandment from God, and in order to fulfill it, girls were sometimes married as early as 11 or 12 years old. Marriages were arranged by parents or a matchmaker. The bride's feelings and preferences were rarely taken into account. There's no doubt that for many, marriage and sex were a deeply traumatic undertaking, one they had no power to object to. Perhaps some of the young women who reported being afflicted by Dibbuks were responding to this trauma. They didn't have the language or the agency to object to marriage, so instead they expressed their pain in ways that were more socially acceptable. We can't know if the outbursts diagnosed as Dibbuks were purposeful deceptions or unconscious expressions of mental distress. What we do know is that young women used the language of rape to describe a phenomenon of extreme violation. When their bodies were no longer their own, they expressed their pain in the only way it would be accepted. When Sarah Leah heard the sound of horses' hooves outside, she pulled herself out of bed and staggered to the window. Her heart leapt when she saw that her husband was standing in the yard. Things had gone from bad to worse in the weeks since the Dibbuk had revealed itself. Rab Herschel had set off right away to fetch the rabbi back from Swonim, but the journey had taken him much longer than it was supposed to. The servants had deserted them as soon as Reb Herschel was gone. No one wanted to work in a house with an evil spirit. 
In the daytime, Fania had no memory of the dibuk that inhabited her body. She couldn't understand why her body ached and her breath tasted of liquor. She walked about the house in a daze, asking what had happened to her father and the servants. Saralia couldn't bring herself to tell her the truth. How do you tell your own daughter that an evil spirit is living inside her? Every night, Fania went to bed and the Dibuk took over. He drank whole bottles of brandy in one gulp, sang body songs, and insulted anyone who came near. Rumors spread, and before long, crowds of onlookers started gathering in the yard, demanding to meet the Butcher of Kiev. At first, Saralia stood at the door and hurled curses at anyone who tried to enter the house, but the long nights outside made her ill. After a few days, Saralia could barely stand. It took all her energy just to stagger to the well to fetch a pail of water. Saralia had never been on her own before. She had no idea how to build a fire or clean a chamber pot. She ate uncooked beets and raw barley. Sometimes she didn't even have the energy for that. All she could do was lie in bed and listen. She listened as the villagers broke down the door at night and stomped up to her daughter's room. The Dibuk told them rude jokes and sang disgusting songs. When they left at sunup, they stole anything they could get their hands on. The wind and snow blew in through the entryway, and Saralia grew sicker and sicker. She was beginning to think her husband would never come home, that he had died on the road to Swonim. When she finally watched him jump down from his horse and approach the decrepit house, she felt something that she hadn't felt in weeks, a sense of hope. When we return, the rabbi of Swonim faces the Dibuk. Now back to the story. As Reb Herschel jumped down from his horse, his heart sank. He'd left for Swonim a month ago. The journey was only supposed to take a week. He'd arrived in the little town and gone straight to the rabbi's mother's house. Reb Zalman was a short man with merry brown eyes. After hearing Herschel's story about the Dibuk, he'd agreed that he would have to come back to Balta straight away. Reb Herschel had sighed with relief. He'd thought then that his troubles were over, but he'd been wrong. That night, the worst blizzard anyone had seen in years began. By the time morning came, the snow was so deep that most people couldn't even open their doors. It didn't let up for a week. Reb Herschel worried about his wife and daughter day and night. He imagined the terrible things that might have befallen them, but he never pictured anything close to the truth. The door hung from a single hinge, and piles of snow had blown into the entryway. Reb Herschel shivered as he made his way to the stairs. Most of the furnishings were gone, and a disheveled man was passed out on the floor of the kitchen. Reb Herschel called out for his wife, and a weak voice answered him. When he caught sight of the figure standing at the top of the stairs, his heart skipped a beat. 
Sarah Leah was ghostly white, her eyes were barely open, and her lips were cracked and dry. He ran up to her and took her in his arms. He could feel that her forehead was burning up. She looked into his eyes and croaked out, Fania, you have to help Fania. He nodded and replied, I will. He called to the rabbi. Sarah Leah took his arm for support as they made their way toward the room at the top of the stairs. As Reb Herschel pushed open the door of his daughter's room, a man's voice imitating a girlish squeal cried out, Welcome back, father. What have you brought me from Swonim? There were a few drunken louts gathered around Fania's bedside, and they erupted in cruel laughter. Reb Herschel felt his cheeks grow hot. He yelled, I've brought your doom, Dibuk. Now get out of my daughter before we force you out. He gestured to the rabbi who had entered the room behind him. The Dibuk laughed and said, that old Schlemiel, he couldn't throw a whore out of a synagogue. Herschel went up to one of the drunks and knocked him to the floor. He kicked the man in the gut a few times as the other onlookers began to stumble out of the room. The rabbi stepped forward and poured water on the glowing coals in the hearth. The room filled with smoke, and the eerie sound of a ram's horn filled the air. The rabbi approached the girl with a silver pendant clutched in his hand. As soon as he got close, Fania punched him hard in the stomach. Herschel stepped forward and tried to restrain her. Fania kicked him in the groin and bit him hard on the arm. She hissed and spat, and deeply inhuman sounds came from her mouth. Finally, the rabbi managed to tie one of her arms to the bedpost. Fania spat a wad of phlegm in his face and laughed like a madman. Then she tore off her shift with her free hand. Reb Herschel nearly fainted when he caught sight of her belly. A strange lump protruded from it like a tumor. As she spoke, the lump moved around like some animal were inside her stomach trying to get out. You useless fools, you'll end up in hell just like the rest of us. The rabbi began to chant and laid a silver star upon Fania's chest. The girl writhed and hissed. She foamed at the mouth and her head whipped back and forth. Reb Herschel looked up at him and cried out, Please, stop! You're going to kill her! In that moment, Fania went still. Her whole body went limp and her eyes glazed. Sarah Leah shrieked. Reb Herschel began to wail. Cruel laughter echoed out of the girl's unmoving lips. She sat up and smiled as the voice said, I told you your trinkets were useless. 
Sarah Leah stepped forward then. She sank to her knees and took her daughter's hand. In a soft voice, she asked, Please, what can we do? Our coffers are empty and our home is destroyed. I am sick and my husband is nearly mad with grief. Look at what you've done to our daughter. Surely you must have some pity. The girl raised an eyebrow and replied, No one pitied me when I walked the roads of Kiev starving and freezing, when my mother sold me to a merchant for twenty shekels, when I was beaten and abused. Who has ever pitied me? Saralia turned to Reb Herschel and replied, I will, and my husband will. Reb Herschel stood on shaky legs. He approached the demon and said, I will make sure you are not forgotten. I will recite psalms and read the Mishnah. I will give alms and say Kaddish for a year. The Dibuk's tongue lolled as it replied, Swear it, swear that you will, or may a host of evil imps tear you limb from limb as they have done to me. The rabbi cried out, Don't do it, the demon lies. Reb Herschel ignored him and replied, I swear it. The Dibuk sighed and said, Just give the alms. Don't bother saying Kaddish or reading the Mishnah. I've been dead so long, it wouldn't make a difference. The girl fell back against the bed. Her eyes closed and her body went limp. A foul wind swept through the room. It was the stench of rotting corpses. Then it was gone, along with the lump in Fania's belly. For a moment, all was quiet. Then Fania opened her eyes and asked for a glass of water. Reb Herschel collapsed in sobs. Sarah Leah stroked her daughter's hand and told her she could have whatever she wanted. Medieval accounts of Dibok possessions often play out like medical dramas. A woman is diagnosed with symptoms of possession and given the cure of an exorcism. For hundreds of years, this was the narrative of most Dibok stories. But at the turn of the 19th century, a burgeoning Jewish literary tradition would create a new type of Dibok tale. Up until the late 1800s, Yiddish was considered a language of commoners. Jewish writers who wanted to be taken seriously wrote in Hebrew, the language of scripture. Authors like Sholem Aleichem used this linguistic snobbery to satirize religious orthodoxy. Others like Isaac Boshevis Singer used their writing to elevate the Yiddish language and document the rich cultural history of Eastern European Jews. Both Singer and Aleichem created their own entirely unique Dibok stories that did away with the sexual overtones of the medieval tales. Alehim's story, The Haunted Tailor, is set in a time when violent pogroms were ravaging Jewish communities. In this take on the legend, the image of the Dibok is used to lament the trauma of life in the Jewish Pale of Settlement, an area where Jews were forced to live by the anti-Semitic policies of Tsarist Russia. Isaac Boshevis Singer was known for his supernatural stories, and he has several that involve Dibok's. 
The Dead Fiddler begins as a light-hearted tale about two bickering dibooks who inhabit a young woman, but the narrative gets darker as we learn the tragic tales of these two spirits. One of the most famous Dibbuk stories came from the celebrated playwright S. Ansky. His 1920 play, The Dibbuk, tells the story of a young woman who's possessed on her wedding day. The spirit belongs to a young man who loved her and was secretly wronged by her father. Like with many of the Dibbuk stories written around the turn of the century, the Dibbuk is about the way that the past can come back to haunt us. It uses the backdrop of state-sanctioned violence against Jews to underscore the personal traumas of the characters in the story. Jewish writers at the turn of the century were sandwiched between periods of terrifying violence for Eastern European Jews. As the pogroms of Tsarist Russia came to an end, the rise of fascism in Europe signaled a new era of death and suffering. Life in Jewish shtetls was haunted by seemingly endless cycles of trauma. External forces haunted the lives of the Jewish people without cause. Just as a dibuk invades the body of a young woman, the violence of anti-Semitism invaded Europe, ripping apart families and destroying lives. Sarah Leah did not sleep the night after her daughter's burial. She lay next to her snoring husband, staring at the ceiling and wishing that things were different. Finally, as the sun began to rise, she crept out of bed and went to sit on the steps outside her home. They'd thought their troubles were over when the Dibbuk left Fania's body, but things never really got better. Fania no longer talked in a man's voice, but she was still sickly and weak. The marriage fell through, and Fania's condition got worse and worse. Then one day, she didn't come down to breakfast. They found her lying in bed, her dark curls damp with sweat, and her glassy eyes staring at the ceiling. As Sarah Leah watched the winter sun rise above the frost-covered hillsides, she noticed two people standing on the bridge that led out of town. She walked to the gate and squinted at the distant figures. It was a man and a woman. He wore a blue velvet coat and carried a butcher's knife. The woman was leaning over the edge of the bridge, but as she came up, Sarah Leah's heart nearly stopped. She'd seen those short black curls before. Sarah Leah called out to the couple, but instead of turning around, the pair joined hands and began to walk away from her. Sarah Leah screamed her daughter's name. She opened the gate and ran toward them. As soon as she stepped onto the road, they faded away into smoke. Sarah Leah fell to her knees in the snow. Who had that man been? He had carried a butcher's knife, but then he'd also been wearing a unique velvet jacket. Fania's friend Model had a jacket like that. Tears sprang to her eyes as she recalled an old story she'd once heard. It was about a Dibbuk who had pretended to be a lout and occupied the body of his beloved to keep her from getting married. 
Sarah Leah put a hand to her heart. She had always known that life wasn't fair. There were some things that would always remain a terrifying mystery. She supposed that knowing her daughter's fate would be one of them. Nineteenth-century artist Ephraim Moshe Lillian depicted the Dibuk as a skeleton wrapped in a tattered black cloak. In his illustration, titled Dibuk, the creature is draped across the back of a muscular young man who seems almost unaware of it. He's struggling across a barren landscape focused on the graveyard in front of him. Lillian's illustration is a metaphor for the central fear behind stories about Dibuk's, a fear of the burden of the past. It's meant to show the way that our traumas stay with us, a load that we may not be aware of, but that weighs down every step we take. For the Jewish women of the Middle Ages, those burdens were centered around traumatic sexual encounters. Their lack of agency in their own lives led to outbursts of acute mental distress. The legend of the Dibuk started with these women, but as time went on and Jewish women began to gain more agency and control over their lives, it evolved. At the turn of the century, it represented the violence of anti-Semitism. Whatever meaning it took on, the Dibuk always had a powerful lesson to teach. Violence does not end with death. It echoes through the years, and the longer it's ignored, the more chaos and destruction will follow. Thanks for listening to Mythical Monsters. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Dibooks, amongst the many sources we used, we found the book Dibooks and Jewish Women in Social History, Mysticism, and Folklore by Rahel Elior, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Mythical Monsters, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Mythical Monsters on Spotify, just open the app and type Mythical Monsters in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. I'll see you next time. Mythical Monsters was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Mythical Monsters was written by Zoe Louisa Lewis, with writing assistance by Greg Castro. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Hey, Parcasters, don't forget to check out the brand new Spotify original from Parcast, Incredible Feats. Join host Dan Cummins as he explores true accounts of weird, wonderful, and all-out wild achievements. New episodes premiere daily Monday through Friday. Search Incredible Feats and follow free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.